Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Let me ask, do you guys, uh, or do you all have a friend, maybe somebody that likes to remind you that Christmas is not really uh, uh, it's a pagan holiday. It's not when Jesus was actually born, or maybe you're that person. I, I'll be honest with you. I've had friends do that to me, and I'll sometimes think when they approach me with that truth, I'm like, such a buzzkill. But I will not deny that that's actually correct. There's truth in the statement. And I know it's a little strange that we're starting off this sermon series about Advent by talking about how the dates that we're honoring are all wrong, But, you know, we're a woke, and I'm expanding the definition of woke for myself. We are a woke church, and so we no use hiding truth or facts. So, my woke church, I want to consider some facts about Christmas. Back in the day, uh, the early Christian church, they did not focus on the birth of the Savior. Matthew and Luke, they did write more than a little about the birth of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth in the first place, but it wasn't so that folks could have a birthday party for Jesus. It wasn't that. It was actually to prove how the manner and the method of Jesus' birth fulfilled all the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. It was all about showing evidence of the Messiah so that the ultimate work of the Messiah on the cross and from the tomb, so that that could be celebrated. Because the emphasis of the early church was much more on the resurrection, on Easter. That was the big deal. Also, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a really good time frame either for the birth of Jesus. Really, really, if you look at it, the images of the Magi, the wise men following the star of David to see the Messiah walking through winter snow, or or the shepherd standing on a a cold winter's night uh, as the angels proclaim the birth of the king. That's probably not right. Really, a lot of scholars assume that The actual birth probably happened in the spring, not in the winter. That would have been the more logical time. Shepherds herding, moving flocks around like that probably wasn't so much a winter thing. And if you were really to go down that rabbit hole or Reddit trail if you wanted to, you'll you'll find lots of theories, lots of articles and posts about the origination of Christmas. I mean... December 25th, the actual day. And there's, there's a bit out there, but let me give you some, again, facts about the historical facts about Christmas, December 25th. The setting of that commemoration of Jesus' birthday to be on the winter solstice, which is what that is, that was done by uh, Pope Julius I. This is back in the 3rd century. And a lot of folks like to interpret uh, that decision by that early pope as being very poetic. It's let's celebrate the, the entry of the light of the world on the darkest night of the world. In reality, I I do believe that it was just probably easier to absorb existing pagan traditions uh, and make them into new Christian ones. I think that's what happened. And and, and Christmas wasn't even a thing in the United States until the 1870s. That's when it became a federal holiday in the U.S. And then a whole industry is born around a single day, from parades to Black Friday to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or whatever. It's Christmas. 
And then you have Advent, the whole Advent season. Advent, which comes from the Latin word Adventus, which was translated from Greek, parousia, which ultimately in English just means coming. The season of Advent was created to consider the coming of Jesus the first time so we can consider his return the last time. Advent is essentially the Christmas equivalent of Lent for Easter, a time where we prepare as we remember Christ came and is coming into the world. I'll tell you, I'm giving you all this extra biblical history around this day and this season for a reason. I, see, I really love this time of year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's so much fun. It brings people so much joy, time with family. And I do get that the actual day, December 25th, that is not Jesus' birthday. I understand that. <clears throat> we're not, we're not going to have a birthday cake. We're not going to sing happy birthday to Jesus when we, the day comes. Well, if the beloved kids want to do it, that's totally fine. Uh, and I don't know if they're listening over there, but go for it. Just save me a slice of cake if you do. But I also get, I do understand it's not the actual day, but we're not going to go the other extreme either. We're not going to go down and declare this as a non-day. We're not going to go the way, and no, no offense, but we're not going the way of Jehovah's Witnesses who don't celebrate Christmas, don't celebrate birthdays at all. Because this is the day. This is the day we remember that the Word became flesh. This is the day we remember and celebrate the fact that the Son of God became the Son of Man. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be seen as righteous in God's eyes. Christ the Savior was born in Bethlehem. And we're going to use December 25th still to represent the amazing grace and the path to redemption that Christ alone provides for us. That's what Christmas is about. Which brings us to this sermon series, uh, The Songs of the Baby Jesus, or Poems of Praise. That's the name we've given it. Acronym, Pop Music. It's the first Pop music, better than BTS. Um, I want to tell you, I want to share a little bit of the, of the making of the sausage. For those of you who are younger, you may not have be familiar with the term making of the sausage. It's an old term. Maurice knows it. Uh, but for our vegetarian and our, and our vegan friends, hold on to your seats. I'm sorry to get a little bit disgusting. Uh, the process of making sausage, for those of you who are not familiar, or a link or a hot dog, it is not pretty. There's a lot of chopping up of different pig parts, cow parts, anything else that happened to be in that factory and shoving it into an intestine, right? Their own intestine sometimes. And, and the, the process, that phrase, making the sausage, it would be used to describe something typically done behind the scenes that was kind of disgusting. So I want to share a little bit of making the church sausage, which is, thankfully, not quite as disgusting as making a hot dog. But every Monday, the staff, we gather together at our house and we talk about this past Sunday service, we talk about the next Sunday service, about how we can care for the church as a whole and what we need to do to prepare. And then there's a whole process of preparing sermon series like the one that we're starting today. And in the past, when it came to pulling together a, a sermon series, I have um, worked typically with a team, um, like pastors and elders. We come to a consensus about the topic, uh, the scriptural breakdown, what we believe God is leading us to preach for the benefit of you, for the congregation. And ultimately, the goal is to ensure that it's never my will or my agenda coming from this pulpit. It ultimately is to be of God, from God, to be wholly gospel-centered, whatever we preach up here. 
But the reality is we don't have that right now. We don't have a plurality of elders and pastors. So I don't want to be dictatorial. I want to get input and spend a lot of time praying about it, but I also bring in the staff, trying to discern what God's leading us to focus on for the benefit of you all here as our church. And as we were <clears throat> ending, ending our Minor Prophet series, I think it was back in September, I, I mentioned that I need to start thinking about and praying about the sermon series for Advent. We try to plan at least three to six months in advance. And Jonah stepped up uh, and said, you know, I have an idea. And Jonah has many good ideas. And he shared how he'd been spending time in his devotions, a lot of time on the songs in Luke, and how those songs that led to proclaiming the birth of Christ, as well as the one that was sung soon after Jesus' birth. And I thought, yeah, that, that sounds like a great idea. But I was thinking, are there actually four songs? Because if you look, there are three significant songs in here that were so significant they were given a name by early theologians. And just as a side note, early theologians were not innovative, were not, <laughs> when it came to giving titles to songs. Our team comes up with poems of praise, which is nice. But my favorite passage is in Deuteronomy, and it goes, Oh, it, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So I love that passage. And this passage, because it's so significant, has a name, which is simply Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word for here. It's just the first word of that prayer. That's the naming schema that theologians would use. So three of the songs that we're going to be looking at in Luke are basically, or poems of praise, they're just named after the first word in Latin for each of those passages. So we have Mary's Magnificat, we have Zachariah's Benedictus, and we have Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. The fourth song we're going to be looking at is actually the song sung by the angels to the shepherds, which is very short. Uh, it doesn't have its own name. But those are the four songs. So the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to consider those songs, those poems of praise that were proclaim, proclaiming Christ's initial entry into the world because we want to ultimately consider his eventual return back. So we're going to start with Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat. And I mentioned Magnificat is Latin for the first word in this passage, which is magnifies. So Mary's song is named after uh, the first line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And before we dive too much deeper into this song, I, I want to make sure that we all have a level context, the same playing field, because I really want you to fully appreciate the beauty of this song. It, scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, based on tradition at the time, believed that Mary was between 14 to 16 years old, maybe younger, which is weird. Because basically, this young girl is like 10 to 15 years younger than the majority of the people in this room. And she's about to get married. And let's say for the sake of argument that she's actually excited and happy to marry Joseph. I don't know much about Joseph, really. We just know that he wasn't. He was around when Jesus was a tween, but then he's gone when Jesus started his ministry. That's, that's basically all we know about Joseph. There's theories, and I would encourage you not to go down that Reddit trail uh, about the theories of who Joseph was, because there's been, I've seen postings of how Joseph was anywhere between 16 years old and 90 years old. I really don't think he was 90. I think I'm going more towards 60, but um, 16, but 
I'll say this again. I, I don't have a biblical basis for this, but I'm just going to imagine for a second that Mary was excited about her wedding day, right? She's ready, getting ready for it. Regardless, I do know this. Joseph, based on his reaction to what ultimately happened between him and Mary and, and the birth of Jesus, Joseph at least showed that there was mutual respect for each other because of how he treated Mary when all this was happening. And I guess whether she was excited about it or not, regardless, she was getting ready to get married. If you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So a virgin betrothed or a woman legally bound to be married. A fianced girl. So Mary's probably got some plans going on. She's probably thinking about what to serve and what's going to happen on the wedding day and how she's going to change the decor at Joseph's house when she moves in. And, and maybe she's a little freaked out about the wedding night itself because, you know, she's her stories, weird stories about what sex is going to be like. It's going to be her first time, and so she's nervous, and then suddenly an angel shows up. I have to say, have you ever noticed that when you read Scripture, every time an angel shows up, people are typically not excited or happy. They, God sends an emissary to share the word from him directly, and, and humanity's typical reaction initially is not to say, oh, thank you, God, for blessing me with the privilege of seeing the heavenly host descend upon me to bring your wisdom and your words directly to me. No, the typical human reaction is, oh, crap, right? Their initial reaction is, what? what What's going to happen? Verse 28 and 29, you see her oh crap moment. She says, he came to her and said, uh, greetings, oh favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary's reaction was, oh crap. What's Gabriel doing here? Why is he here? What's about to happen? Thankfully, Gabriel is not one for drama. He didn't leave her in suspense. He explained to her immediately why he was there. Going on in chapter 1, verse 30 to 33, this is what it says. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This was not part of Mary's wedding plan, her outline. This was not what she was thinking was going to happen. This was not part of her five-year plan. No, this was out of the blue. But her reaction, I think, is amazing. Because you see it in verse 34, and it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Now, she didn't ask why. She didn't try to give excuses like Moses did a long time ago as to why this wasn't a good idea. She didn't fight Gabriel and by proxy, proxy try to fight God. Instead, she just said, Can you give me the details so I can prepare for what's coming? She understood that God's plan included her, and it included her in a way that's totally outside her comfort zone. 
outside of our plans. But that was okay. Just tell me what to do, God. I'm here. Send me. And in verse 38, it continues on. It says, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's Mary's context. That's the background. That's the setting. This is where Mary is at emotionally and physically as we are about to come to her song. This beautiful, theologically rich song that proclaims God's glory through the fulfillment of the promise God had made centuries earlier. The Magnificat. Now, there are many theologians, well, not many, but there are a few who think this could not have been written by a young teenage girl. There's no way, because there's so many references to Old Testament scripture and prophecies. In here you have a reference to Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, to Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, to Habakkuk's promise of the judgment and salvation that's coming. But I would argue that that's exactly how we do know that this is her song. Because she likely clung to the truths that she'd been taught in the synagogue since she was a kid. The truth that she had memorized as a child about the coming Messiah. She may not have been a scholar. She may not have been a teacher. But she was a good Jewish girl who had found favor in God's eyes. And she kept the word of God close to her, meditating on it day and night. She took her, her Sabbath school lessons seriously. She, she remembered her Torah well. She knew the stories. Mary knew the, the, the passages that pointed to the Messiah. She, she would have learned them and just held on to them because she understood that all of Scripture, all of the law, all of it was intended to point her to the coming Savior. She was gospel-centered. Mary understood that the Bible may not have been written to her, but it was written for her. It, was, it wasn't written to live, give you instructions on how to live a good life. She knew it was written to point us to the perfecter of life. She was a good Jewish girl who memorized those passages that pointed to the signs that would proclaim the coming of the king. She probably remembered Isaiah where it says, Behold the virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Our beloved kids are, are trying to, if I'm not mistaken, memorize a new verse every week, I think. I don't know how they're doing. Uh, I don't know if you did the same when you were growing up, uh, but those lessons that you learned as a kid, whether it was memory verses or, you know, if you're a math person, multiplication tables or how to fix a car, whatever those things are when you were learning as a kid, they stick with you. So Mary, as she's singing this song from her heart about her kid, the one that she knows is going to be the promised Messiah, all those lessons probably started to bubble up again. That's why I know it's her song. I'll tell you, there are lots of books, lots of tomes written about this one passage, this Magnificat. Uh, and there is a lot that we could go into, but we're not going to. We're not going to go into an exhaustive study of all the nuances of this particular song. Which just one main point, really, that I want to consider as we kick off this Advent sermon series, which is this. Uh, with Mary's song, you see that the anticipated coming of Christ is personal and is public. It's about you and me, and it's about all of us together. 
And, and, and not only is this promised Messiah personal and is public, but it's also really unexpected. The anticipated Messiah was about to show up in a way that no one saw coming. I want to read to you the start of this passage that Hannah read for us today. And it starts out by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, in this song, and the background is Mary's now with her cousin, the future mom of John the Baptist. And up until now, Mary's been ready to obey. She's a good Jewish girl. She's going to trust and obey, but not until Elizabeth and her fetus, John the Baptist, that's not yet born, when they proclaim that Mary is carrying the Son of God, then the enormity of what is about to happen hits Mary hard. Mary shows up at Elizabeth or Liz's house, and Liz is suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. And Liz and John, the fetus, uh, and this could be another poem of phrase, they cry out in verse 42. It says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary hears this. And seems to come out of a, a daze, a little bit of a fog. She's a, like I said, she's a good Jewish girl, ready to do God's will. But when her cousin Liz proclaims this, suddenly she snaps out of it and says, and Liz says, good Lord, you're going to be the mom of the Savior, the Messiah that we have been waiting for for centuries. Seriously. And you're going to hang out with me. That's cool. Reality slaps Mary in the face, and she cries out, my soul, it magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. I'm blessed. God is doing amazing things in me and through me and for me. And the anticipated Christ becomes personal to Mary at that moment. And it's not like anyone, anyone, anything anyone expected, because Mary introduces this idea that the coming Redeemer is now changing all the rules. In verse 48, Mary sings, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And Mary knew, really, that she wasn't anyone of importance or significance from a societal perspective, right? I mean, the world was going to be looking at her very soon. As soon as that baby bump started to show, they're going to be looking at her and thinking, slut, whore. There she is. She, she either had sex with Joseph before they actually got married, or she had sex with somebody else. Either way, that baby is illegitimate. Now, maybe it's possible that her plan to hang out with her cousin for as long as she did was partially just to avoid public scrutiny. Because people in her little town, they're going to get all into her business. But the joy of the anticipated Savior's entry into the world via Mary, the realization that the waiting was over and the Messiah was coming, the amazement that God wouldn't choose a queen or a princess, a member of the Sanhedrin, a judge, someone of wealth or importance, but that God would rather choose a simple, young teenager to bring in the Redeemer of the world, that God would decide to bring the long-awaited Savior, not, not like on a white horse of grandeur, but through the womb of a woman who most 
would now look at with condemnation and scandal? She cries out, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on this humble, on the humble estate of his servant. And for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary sees her value, her worth, because God upends all of society's expectations. He says, she says, I'm going to be blessed. Now, I want you to know, Mary's not saying or calling attention to herself in that moment. She's actually calling all the attention on God. Don't behold me. Behold God's amazing work. Behold how God is lifting the lowly. God is doing great things. It's all about God. Don't venerate me. Don't worship me. Worship him. So the anticipated entry of the Messiah is personal to Mary. And it's public as well. That's the second thing. Let me read to you verses 50 to 55. This is what it says there. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, mercy as he spoke to his, our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Mary switches to a, a community focus for the last half of her song. And it's not just her community, but every community. Jew, Gentile, future, present. She's singing this beautiful truth that, that the coming Messiah, that the coming King is for all those who will bow to the Savior. And I'll tell you, back then, and especially today, there are still many who choose not to join this community, who choose not to see this reality, that this baby born is the savior of the world. Many choose not to accept this gift from God, and more than a few don't understand what this whole story is about, the savior that Mary's singing about. They just don't get it. And I think it's partly because of the truth that the gift of the Savior is not wrapped like one would expect. It's fully unexpected. Mary's poem of praise points out that the gift of salvation is coming wrapped in humility, not hubris. Unexpected. The gift of redemption is coming through the marginalized, not the magnified. It's unexpected. The, the promised Messiah is coming via the poor, not the powerful. It's unexpected. It says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich sent away empty. Um, I'm about over time. I'm going to ask the band to make their way up uh, to the stage. And I want to end by just encouraging community groups. If you're not part of a community group, please email opal at cotv.life and they'll get you connected. But if you can, dive deeper into this poem of praise uh, from Mary. There's so much in it. And I would encourage you, as you do that, recognize a few things. Jesus came, and Jesus is coming for me, for you, and for all of us. His coming was and is private and public. 
And in the same way, our faith, it should be both private and public. We are in this with God and with each other because the gospel transforms me so I can help the gospel transform you. And the way he came the first time and the way he's going to come the last time, it's going to be bad for the world as a whole because the world assumes that the only the powerful are going to win. The world assumes that only the patriarchy will win. The world assumes that only the majority will win. But Jesus promises something totally different, totally revolutionary, that the lowly are lifted with the Lord, that the meek are magnified by our Messiah, that the humble are honored by him. And this is the Jesus that we are anxiously awaiting. This is the Messiah of Mary's pop song. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.